The book of Galatians. <clears throat> this was me in 1984. I was in South Korea. It was February. It was 35 degrees below zero. And we were not allowed to go outside. And on my bunk, I don't know how I got this picture. I can't remember. Somebody just said, hey, Sergeant Fraser. But I had just finished reading the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, you know, when I, I sat and I laid down on my bunk, I was reading my Bible, and I read through Galatians, and I realized, wait a minute. This is not what I've been taught. I had been taught that the Christian walk was about do this, do this, do this, do this. And if you did that, you were okay. And Galatians showed me that, wait a minute, the life you now live is a life in the Spirit. And so... It really radically changed my view. And when I got back home, I shared with Audrey about it. And uh, it was for freedom that Christ had set us free. The book of Galatians, when we look at chapter 4, I, th I think in particular. Let's look at verse 3. In the same way, we also were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now that word dulo means to be, to gain control. Enslave means to gain control over somebody or someone. In this case, it's the elementary principles of the world, stoicheion. There's two ways you can interpret that. One way is that you're under the dominion of the universal elements of the world. But most scholars, and myself included, refer to this as the supernatural aspect. When you look at Colossians 2.20, you see if Christ, if you died with Christ to the elementary spirits of the world, why, as if you were still in the world, do you submit to the regulations? The issue here is a spiritual issue. It is one that affects both the Jew and the Gentile. And by the way, reminding the church this morning, we are all Gentiles. Although, when you trust in Christ, you become a Jew inwardly circumcision of the heart and so this word enslaved carries two ideas particularly in the book of Galatians the Jews in 323 now before faith came that is before Jesus Christ we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming of faith that would be revealed in other words God gave the law to the to the Israelites to keep them in check until Jesus came and introduced faith into this new covenant that he was going to make. The Gentiles, that's us. Romans 2.14, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they themselves are a law unto themselves. So here's the thing. When we read the book of Galatians, we have to understand that neither Jew nor Gentile are freed at this point. They're in, they're in bondage. And so something had to happen. Walter Hansen in his commentary writes this, the pagan Gentiles were not enslaved to the Mosaic law because the Mosaic law was given to the Israelites. Jews were not enslaved to pagan idolatry. That's our ancestry, by the way. But these two situations of slavery were the same in one respect. 
Jews and Gentiles were enslaved to something less than the immediate knowledge of God that is enjoyed today by believers. At this point, there was a general knowledge of God, but not the way that we understand it today. And so God had to do something, and God's solution to this problem, which was before the foundations of the world, God sent his son, and we look first of all at the timing. But when the fullness of time had come, pleroma, which is the word for fullness, that means the totality of a period. When you look at chronos, which is time, it is a reference to events. So what we have here within this, this little passage that we're looking at, for when the fullness of time had come, when it had reached fruition, in other words, before the foundations of the world, God knew that he was going to redeem man in Jesus Christ. He knew that they were sinners needing to be saved. And so God had a plan in place, and when those events reached a culmination by which Jesus Christ could be brought forth, those events had reached the fullness of time. Now, the fullness of time is rather interesting in and of itself. The fullness of time, this is what was taking place. I want you to think about, no matter what happens, it all started with Alexander the Great, Basically, the New Testament started there. Um, but when you, when you look at the period of time, during that time frame from around 300 B.C. to the birth of Jesus, there was a lot of stuff taking place. Men foolishly believe that they are in control of the governments. Ultimately, we know from the book of Romans and other places that God is the one that established governments, and he does this for a purpose and for a reason. Now, the fullness of time, you could go anywhere pretty much in the Roman world and speak Greek. You would be heard. You would, you would be able to understand. It was kind of like a universal language. Like here in America, we speak English. Over in England, they speak English. There's a universal language that has taken place. It's not all these divisions anymore. God knew that there would be a perfect moment in time when this could happen. Secondly, Rome had built new road systems. In, in fact, some of the greatest systems in the world at the time, much like our interstates, made travel very easy. So there was all these roads that were built. It was uh, Pax Rama, which was a time of peace. There was no war during this period. And particularly if you go back and you look at history, you'll find from about 27 A.D., to 14 B or 2027 BC to 14 AD there was no war guess when Christ came during a time of peace isn't he the one that brings peace to the world so there was this going on but then there was also Caesar Augustus ordered a census to be taken wow just all this is just coincidence and that's why Jesus and or Mary and Joseph, they had to go back to Joseph's hometown in Bethlehem. You know, the Old Testament prophesies that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. Caesar was not God. Caesar fell in line with the plan of God. And so at this point, you have all of this going on. Then you have idol worship was on decline. 
the world at the time of Christ, the world at the time of Christ, before Christ, there was idolatry. But by the time of Christ, people were hungry for something new. They were hungry for something different. Our culture today is hungry, brothers and sisters, and it's our job to get the gospel message out. It's our job. This great time of the year, Jesus, the birth, the Son of God, came to this earth, born, and went to the cross to pay for our sins. This is, this is a great time to share the gospel. So at this point, people were hungry. Now with all of this happening, Greek being the universal language, Rome built road systems. There was a time of peace, the census, Idol worship on decline. It was a perfect moment. You know, God is out of time, but yet he's in time. It's like trying to nail jelly to a wall to figure out. But before the foundations of the world, God knew. But at the same time as looking back, bringing all events to himself. And so at this particular moment, Jesus Christ is born. Now, when we look at the sending, look at this verse. God sent forth his son. God sent forth his son. Exapostella. Exapostella. And that means to send out and away from. To send out and away from where? Well, from heaven. Think about this. We know from archaeology and geography that Bethlehem stables were more caves than anything else. This is probably a more accurate depiction of the birth of the Savior. It was more in a in a cave environment, which was called a stable. I want you to think about, just for a minute, here you have the divine Savior. Here you have God coming down and being born in a stable. Not in a palace, not like the king. He comes down and he is, is born basically in a cave. And God sent his son. He said, son, now it's time to go and start your ministry on earth among mortals. Jesus willingly left his place in heaven to come to this earth and to be born in every way that we have been born to redeem us from our own sin. Let me ask you a question. If you lived in a mansion, would you go out into the streets and dwell among them? That's exactly what Jesus did. God sent forth his son, Timothy George, in his commentary writes this, one could hardly find a more succinct summary of the Christian gospel than the expression God sent his son. Implicit in these words are two ideas. I would say three. 
but of which are fundamental to the holistic Christological affirmation, divine intentionality and eternal deity. This was a moment in which God acted to redeem us. It was God's plan. Therefore, at the moment that Jesus was coming to this earth in form of a human, he intentionally sent Jesus down for the purpose of giving eternal life. As Christ, as the Savior, Jesus raised people from the dead. As Christ, he, saw, he made the blind to see, the lame to walk. He healed the infirm. And he fed thousands. And he dwelt among us, John says. As man, he started as a baby in every way that we did. Out of the birth canal, Jesus came out just like we did. He skinned his knees. He cried as a child. When he skinned his knees, he bled in every way. Jesus experienced every human emotion that we do. And yet, somehow, Jesus, fully God, fully man, in one person. It's amazing. It's amazing. And God did this. Even, even the conception of Christ was amazing. So the sending was unique. The conditions. Look at verse 4c. God sent forth his son born under the law. Under is hupo, which means under the control of something. In this case, it is nomos, the law, which that reference is to the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the, the Pentateuch. It is the Mosaic writings. So Jesus was born under the law. This is definitely a reference to the Jews, but also to the, to the, to the Gentiles. Because remember, we were a law unto ourselves. So Jesus was born in this environment. He was born under the law. Under the obligations is the, the Greek word there, hupo. Under the obligations of the law, the nomos. Lehman Strauss, one of my favorite commentators, write this. Although he was Lord of the law and its divine author. Listen to this. This is magnificent. He took his place as a man under the law, subjecting himself to its restrictions and requirements. And praise God, he established a perfect record in that he kept the law fully. Thus, Christ was an acceptable sacrifice to bear our sins on the cross. Jesus knew the law better than anybody. Because he was the author of it. And can you imagine a prince, a king of kings, willingly subjecting himself to a law which he wrote, which was about him? And by the way, 
as Jesus grew in favor with God and man, he was without sin. He was without sin. Jesus never sinned. Yet when he went to the cross, he took on our sin on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? was a moment in history that should never be forgotten. At that moment, Christ literally became my sin. And for the first time, Christ was calling out to the Father, where are you? And at that moment, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross, paid for my sin, paid for your sin in full. Now the salvation story starts in Genesis 3 with the fall of mankind. And then the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, where uh, God told Abraham to get out of the land that I will show you, and I will make you a father of many nations. And this is where it trips the Jews up, the Jewish people. Uh, because in, in Galatians chapter 3, I'm going to read it to you, Galatians chapter 3, this is what I mean, and Paul's writing this to a Jewish audience as well. The law which came 430 years later, or after the Mosaic, or the uh, Abrahamic promise, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make it void. So in other words, the Jews' argument for rejecting Christ in one sense was the idea that, wait a minute, God promised Abraham before the law came into be. So when the law came into be, which was 430 years later after that event, it negated the Abrahamic promise that he would be the father of many nations. So the Jews said, wait a minute, the law supersedes the promise. And therefore, we're not going to believe in Jesus. I think that's part of it. But the salvation story also begins with the sending of Christ. God sent his son. It's quite amazing. The, these little one verse. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman born under the law. There's so much in their history. God's divine intervention in our lostness. You know, the world's not afraid of a baby. The world loves a baby. They're cute. They're cuddly. But when you talk about Jesus, the man, Jesus who said, there is no other way to God except through me. And when Jesus starts talking about sin and the need for redemption, the world starts having a problem with it. But at this moment, God says, you know what? I want you to go and I want you to save the world. Deacon Kent read the verses. He didn't come to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. 
He came to save the world. That's why Christ came. That's why we can celebrate this Christmas season with the birth of Jesus. We know it is the birth of a new beginning. And Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. How can I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? This is a new day. This is a new era. God is going to radically change things through the birth of Jesus. Let me remind the church today that Jesus is not a religion. Jesus is a relationship. And God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, born under the law. What was the possible purpose of this? Well, it was to set us free from bondage. This is my favorite part of the sermon coming up. To redeem. Ex garzo. Ex garzo, which means to buy or to purchase and therefore to set free. To redeem those who were under the law. Hupo. Both the Gentiles and the Jews. He purchased, he bought back our lives. 1 Corinthians 6.20 reminds us, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your bodies. And the ultimate price that Christ paid were nails that were driven through his hands. Nails that were driven through his feet, bleeding and dying on my, in my place, in your place. He bled and died willingly for that. Taking on the full wrath of God, Paul says in Romans, the full wrath of God was upon him. Yet at the end, when Christ died, the perfect sacrificial lamb, when he died, the price had been paid. When Jesus said his last words on the cross, it is finished, the new way opened. The price had been paid. You have been paid for by the Savior. Paul could say, I went from being a slave to sin to a slave to Christ. You want to see somebody that had a radical life change? Look at the life of the Apostle Paul. Killing and imprisoning Christians. And then on the road to Damascus, he ran into the Savior. The Savior changed his life. And the persecutor became the persecuted. The one who was divvying out punishment and hatred was the one who was at the receiving end of that in his redemption and his purchase. Let me remind us this morning and those watching by Facebook and listening by phone. The world does not like us. But we have an obligation to tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. Even if it means tough days and tough times. Because the good news is good news. The good news is that Jesus Christ came to redeem us. To pay for all of our sins, past, present, and future. For those that would trust in him as their Lord, as their Lord and say, as his Lord and Savior, would be redeemed and all would be forgiven. And then something wonderful happens. Two obviously points to purpose, so that the result of that purpose, so that I love this, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Who will they see us? 
huothasia. I'm going to tell you exactly what it means because I just got it right out of the theological dictionary. To formally and legally declare that someone who is not one's own child is henceforth to be treated and cared for as one's own child, including complete rights of inheritance. Wow. Two of these beautiful kids were not naturally born to this mother and father. Yet, the mother and father adopted them. And when they adopted these two children, they brought them into their family, who were not formally part of their family. And these, these two additional children took the father's last name. Do you not realize that the people of Israel are God's people? We were exiles and foreigners to that. And yet God in his great mercy and great wisdom adopted us. You are now a child of God. He brought you in and the adoption took place in part at the cross. And obviously the resurrection because without the resurrection there is no salvation. And so therefore Paul could write in Ephesians we have been blessed in the heavenly realms and now we reign with Christ in heaven yet we live here. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. You have been adopted into the family of God. And let me ask you a question. How much did you do to deserve that? We didn't do anything. You have to be mindful of the fact that God, through Jesus Christ, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, did it all. Because we were unable to meet the high standard of perfection that Jesus Christ did. Wow. Think of that. God sends his son to the filth of this world to redeem the filth. And then cleans us up and sets us at the table in the kingdom of God. Pauline theology, already not yet. I'm between two worlds. Those of you that have been redeemed by the Holy Spirit, you have the Spirit in you. We'll get to that in just a second. And therefore, you're already reigning with Christ, even though you are here. That's why when we die, there is no chasm to cross. We, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When a believer dies, they go immediately into the presence of Christ. And we can praise God for that. And he adopts us. And by the way, the Holy Spirit's involved in this. And because you are sons, you could say, and daughters, God has sent the Son, sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. I want you to look at this. Just carefully look at this. Circle God, circle the Spirit, and circle the Son. It's the Trinitarian approach to our redemption. 
God the Father who initiated salvation, Jesus Christ who gained salvation, and the Holy Spirit who keeps our salvation. And yet, they are three in one. That's where we get our theology from. God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our cardia. That's the, that's the Greek word for heart. Cardia. And, and that is the seat of emotions, the thoughts, the feelings. He comes in and captures our hearts. You say, well, pastor, how is that possible? So here you have the Holy Spirit and our spirit combining, making us a child of God. The adoption, the adoption is of our spirit. Paul says it very clearly in Romans. In Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So what gets captured in salvation is who you are inwardly. It's your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions. My, my goodness, when you read the New Testament, everything is about the mind. Purify your mind. Focus on things above, not on things below, Paul writes in Colossians. He captures us so that he begins to transform how we think and how we feel and how we view the world. That's where the process of salvation takes place until we see the Savior face to face. It's called discipleship. And I tell you, when I was first saved, I don't mind sharing this because... I don't. I, I got saved October 12th, 1981. I know somebody else that got saved October 12th. Many years before me, Rosemary. We share the same spiritual birthday, just different times. I got saved and then immediately went back out to the bars. Because my friends invited me. So I went to the bars with them. Now, before when I went to the bars, I used to party up. I was 19, eight, 18. But when I got saved and I went with my friends back to the bars, guess what? Something wasn't right. I didn't feel right about it. Something was different. The difference was the Holy Spirit living inside of me. That was the difference. And then, of course, God, through a series of events begins to grow me. God does this because he loves us. He redeems us because he loves us. Paul writes towards the end of Galatians. And I love verse chapter 5 verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand therefore and do do not stand firm therefore and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery, which is your former life. Bondage. Christ set us free. And then the goal of the Christian life, I want you to understand that when you trust in Christ, and I mean really trust in Christ with all of your heart, you are saved. 
You are born anew. Radical transformation takes place even though you don't see it initially. This is not about me kind of doing my little bit and then God doing a little bit. This is about me surrendering my life. And when we surrender our lives, we're at that point, the, the part of growing in Christ is that we keep in step with the Spirit who has adopted us. And we grow in the knowledge and the grace of Jesus Christ, as Peter writes. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It, it, it troubles me, as a pastor now of 30 years, it, it troubles me when, when people say, I hope I'm saved. I ask them a question, have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes. Quote John, these things have I written that you may know you have eternal life. Now, I believe in eternal security because you can only be saved as many times as Christ died on the cross. Read Corinthians. Read Hebrews. Have you been so foolish having begun in the spirit are you now being perfected in the flesh? You can only be saved as many times as Christ died and uh, the writer of Hebrews says if you get saved and you could possibly lose your salvation then you could never be saved again because you'd have to put Christ back up on the cross and have him crucified all over again. It can't happen. You're either saved or you're not saved. You either meant it the day that you trusted in Christ or you did not. And if you meant it, let me tell you today as God's messenger to you, you are saved. The Holy Spirit comes into your heart, Acts 1.8, and gives you the power to live out the gospel before the world. Born under the law. Let me close with this. God sent Christ at just the right time. I went back and thought about my salvation. And God sent that army chaplain at just the right time for me. And I trusted in Jesus Christ in a little church in the middle of nowhere in San Antonio, Texas. Fort Sam Houston. Me and the army chaplain in the front row maybe held 20 people. Just me and him. And I prayed to receive Christ at just the right time. I'm, let, me, let me say this. I think God tries to reach us throughout our lives. And I think God gives us many right moments to be saved. But I also believe that we can reach a point in our lives when we have rejected the message over and over and over again that our hearts become so callous that we miss the right time in our lives.
if you're watching by Facebook on our website listening to this and you have not trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior why not make it December 20th 2020 to invite Christ 